Hello and welcome to Newsnight. I am Ladi Akiri Doluale. It's our pleasure to have you join us today. The price of energy has taken center stage in both national and international discussions because of the spiral effects it is having on national economies, as exemplified by sky-high prices of goods and services. In the case of Nigeria, prices of diesel and aviation fuel have also gone sky-high and affected goods and services which are dependent on them for sustenance, such as air tickets. Its petrol prices have also witnessed a rise in spite of debates about the effectiveness and efficiency of subsidies which have been ongoing. Nigeria's energy industry is long on potential, but short on actual achievements or progress. Why is this so, and what exactly has been the driver of both national and international energy prices, and what are the possible mitigation measures? Newsnight talks to the Vice Chairman of the Gas to Power Study Group of the Nigerian Gas Association, Mr. Olabodi Shomi. Mr. Shomi, thank you for your time. Welcome to the program. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Let's, uh, let's start off with the issue of pricing, the issue of the pricing. Uh, many people who have heard uh, various programs on various media outlets over the last five months or so uh, have been seeing the seesaw in world energy prices, uh, the prices of petroleum, the prices of gas, uh, especially because Russia, which is one of the protagonists in the Ukraine uh, situation, is a major producer, is one of the world's biggest, and in particular, it is the major supplier to Europe. What do you think is happening with the issues in terms of pricing, uh, especially because Nigeria, which is where we are, uh, is also supposed to be one of the biggest, uh, bigger producers of oil and gas? Okay, I think uh, before we go into the demand and supply dynamics, it will be interesting to first uh, do a small x-ray of the politics and how we got to where we got to with respect to the invasion. Uh, I'm not an international politics expert, so I'm not basically going to speak into the rights or wrong or who did what with respect to the Ukraine-EU-NATO situation. But uh, after the first invasion of, uh, I think, the Donbass region by Ukraine, uh, and there were sanctions by the U.S., I think that was by the Obama government, the, the Russians felt spited. And what they basically did was to start to build up reserves, that's international forex reserves for themselves. And they put most of these reserves out of country, contrary to every other nation. So they had about 13% of it in China, a significant percentage in, in the EU, some in the US and the EU, UK as well. But, and the idea behind all of this was that in the event of a major blockade or sanction by the by the US or Western-led government, they'll be able to use that to buffer the ruble. So basically what the US, what they did not anticipate was for such a coordinated and solid sanction against them. So basically they stopped um, Russia from being able to access any of those funds. They stopped Russian companies from being able to operate. They even stopped investors. And one of the more popular ones was that of Abramovich and his ownership interest in the Chelsea Football Club. However, on the other hand, what they did not envisage was that some of the biggest consumers in the world, and I'm talking about China and India, will continue to trade with them. 
And as a result, they, as of today, since I think within the first 100 days of the war, they have made over a hundred billion USD that has come in from oil proceeds. So basically, they've not lost. But it has altered the supply chain because one of the things that Russia has been able to succeed to do now is to lay siege around Ukraine because basically now, and Ukraine is one of the biggest suppliers of wheat around, I think they are number one or number two. And so they've been able to blockade that from accessing the world. So having said that, with respect to the whole dynamics of the oil and gas industry, gas, which is supposed to be the happy medium between those who are on the extreme for going green immediately and those who are on the other extreme for continuity with respect to fossil fuel, has been something that many countries have been pushing as a transition fuel of choice. In other words, for us to get to the green state that the Eldorado green state, gas can be uh, something that will lead us there. And in the event that we actually get to that much desired green state, there is a need to have something that can be able to power the world because it's possible that we have a solar eclipse and a wind lull at the same time. So if all the wind vanes are not working for a particular time and there's a solar eclipse and no, nowhere in the world can access the sun, the world does not have to collapse as a result of loss of power. So there are those who say that gas should be a backup. But what basically has now happened is that 40% of the gas that is being used in Europe comes in from Russia. Because of the pressure that was put in on the Russian ruble, what Russia now insisted upon was that you either buy our gas in, in rubles or you get no gas at all. Some nations have changed that idea. And I mean, some nations resisted that idea and Russia cut them off. One of which was um, Finland, I think Sweden as well. But um, a nation like Hungary has said that they want to dissociate themselves from the issues and keep to what will make an issue of survival for them. However, there is the belief, a very strong belief, that most of the EU nations are still grandstanding, primarily because the energy for them isn't just a luxury, like it probably is in Nigeria. We could and we could not have public Energy is a life and death situation. And by the time you are getting to winter, there are people who, if they are not able to warm their homes, are going to die. And it is believed that you could begin to see revolts and riots within a lot of the EU nations if this thing is not resolved, if this war is not resolved amicably by the end of October. But that was even a quick prediction. One of the things that has actually also occurred as a result of the invasion itself is a disruption of global supply chain with respect to food. And that has led to increased inflation everywhere in the world within the supply chain. In a lot of countries, in Argentina, in Chile, in Venezuela, there has been significant riots, very, very aggressive riots that are in the rewake or in the model of the uh, riots of the 1970s when there was um, the price hike by the OPEC nations, as they were, I mean, the OPEC countries in their early days as at that time. There has even been some rioting within the UK with people complaining about rising inflation and for the government to come in. There has been issues in India, though it has not led to riots yet, but there has also been issues in the US as well. So basically, this thing is giving a push. The real reason why there is increase in fuel prices and why there will be for some time 
is a basically simple economic issue. It's an issue of demand and supply. There is greater demand than the supply that is available with respect to crude. And because of that, there is increase in prices. Now, the US government is trying to put pressure on OPEC and OPEC nations and, and the OPEC plus nations to increase the amount of crude that is available in the world so that there will be greater supply and so that there will be balancing of the equation. However, there is OPEC and their, their supply nations have certain strengths, but there's so much that they can do because of the war situation and the destruction of the global supply chain. This is why every nation that produces, particularly the ones that export, is in a period of um, gloom at the moment. Saudi Arabia has increased its production within the last 100 days by more than 100%. Sorry, the, the income that has come into them as a result of basically the same production has increased by more than 100%, the same with Iran, the same with Kuwait. In Nigeria, our production, that's a different issue, but the income that we have gotten basically from what we have supplied has been much more significant than it has been any time in the last seven years. So basically, to summarize it, yes, the issues with respect to uh, increase is a simple economic issue. It's an economic issue based on demand and supply. However, the factors that are forcing that demand and supply are extremely con context, are complex and multifactorial. Let's, uh, as you pointed Thank out, you. Let's, let, let's look at the Nigerian situation now. Uh, what most Nigerians have seen is that uh, within the space of uh, six months, diesel prices and a lot of Nigeria's economy is dependent on diesel because of the problems that we have with uh, stable electricity supply. So most companies, manufacturers, industries and so on are completely reliant on alternative sources, generators, and most of those generators, particularly the higher capacity ones, depend on diesel. Then you have transportation. Those who move petroleum products to different parts of the country, those large trucks uh, are also using diesel. You have the situation with aviation fuel. If we take diesel, for example, it has gone from, some say, about 190 at a point uh, last year. Uh, now we're talking about between 800 and 850, uh, depending on where you're buying from. The case of aviation fuel has also had a similarly dramatic increase. Uh, at the last time uh, that it was checked, aviation fuel was more than 700 naira. And people are asking the question, Nigeria produces all these things. Uh, we used to produce them. Our refineries are undergoing rehabilitation, so we are told. Uh, how come we have no bearing, no control whatsoever on how these prices have oscillated and it has more or less ground our economy to a halt? It looks like it's a combination of so many things at the same time, and uh, it's difficult to unpack. What really is happening? Well, like you said, it's a combination of so many things. But at the fundamental, I mean, at the baseline of it, is the lack of transparency within the processes that produces the figures for domestic uh, finished products. Now, to, to put it in perspective, because we do not uh, process our finished products, we do what, what is um, basically a trade by butter program, where we basically ship out finished crude, 
And that finished crude, by the way, is not part of our production quota. So we, we, we have an um, arrangement with certain refineries uh, through certain marketers. We ship out these uh, finished products. The finished products are then processed and come back to us. And then they are now sold to us at internationally competitive rates. Ordinarily, that should not matter. However, because there is also the, the, I mean, the devaluation of the Naira that has, that has arisen over the last few years, as well as um, the, the price to the dollar, what ordinarily could have been stagnant at $100 keeps increasing anytime there's a fluctuation to the, I mean, to the, I mean, fluctuation between the Naira and the dollar. That is at the primary root of the major increases. But the truth be told, how the crude that is being exchanged comes to be sold and the account that it goes to and how these prices are computed needs to be a lot more transparent. And when I mean transparent, I'm talking about it being verifiable. We, we, we trust uh, the people in government, and that's why they're in government, they're in leadership, I mean, to a certain extent. We believe they are acting in our best interest. And it is for those reasons that those things ought to be subject to the public view, so that the um, Association of Accountants can look into those figures, Association of Petroleum Economists can look into those figures. The media can also analyze those figures and bring in experts to look at it, so that that way, when even the government calls for sacrifice from the people, there is a genuine belief that the right thing is being done. So at the root of all these multifactorial things about the Dangote refinery coming up, about the, the old refineries constantly being revamped is the lack of transparency. In fact, when you hear about the refineries undergoing maintenance, what has been lazy on our own part as the general public is a critical mass of the right questions on it. Oh, who has the contract to do this turnaround maintenance? Oh, what are the terms of the contract for the turnaround maintenance? Where are they in terms of the things? Who are those that are doing the supervision of what these people are doing? Is it possible that the public can actually see some of this? I mean, because this calls for, um, without trying to point finger to anyone, the, the civil society, the media as well, to, needs to ask these critical questions from the NNPC. Because it is the absence of these critical questions being asked that we keep hearing the same thing over and over again. Since the year 2000 that I have known, there has always been turnaround maintenance of the refineries. And one begins to question that if we were to actually build refineries from the scratch, how long will it take to build them? That then leaves us with a, a, a different set of issues now, uh, because one of the things uh, which is uh, commonly referred to as the big elephant in the room when we are discussing this transparency issues, verifiability and all of that is the issue of subsidies. Uh, many of the uh, problems, shall we say, that have uh, emanated uh, uh, that result in the people not really believing in the figures is that one, uh, a lot of what is consumed, the figures of consumption, particularly of petrol, are subject to a lot of questions uh, by those who get to see those figures. Uh, secondly, those figures are subject to 
suspicion because those are the figures that are used to calculate subsidies, particularly in the case of petrol. There are those who have also argued that, on the other hand, if you just remove the subsidies uh, on petrol, for example, uh, what has happened in the case of diesel, what has happened in the case of aviation fuel, in many instances what has happened with kerosene, all of which have been deregulated, if that happens in the case of petrol, the economy is going to grind to a halt. That's so. That's why the government is very reluctant to simply remove the subsidies. But looking at it as an insider, as a player within the sector, what do you think really would happen? Because it's not like we have not tried to do this before. We have tried to say, yeah, let's remove the subsidies. As you said, right from the military administration of General Ibrahim Babangida, we've been, re we've been raising prices with the guise of removing subsidy. But here we are, almost 30, 40 years later, we are still talking about subsidies. Well, the subsidy like, I mean, first of all, there is no doubt that there is subsidy. The issue with the subsidy really is that how much is really subsidy and what are we really subsidizing? Are we subsidizing the value chain or are we subsidizing the cost of the finished product itself? These are questions that can only be answered in an atmosphere of genuine transparency. And that is at the root of the problems. I remember when in the last, um, last not last administration, but the last election cycle, when uh, Dr. Kachuku was the petroleum minister, he was on NTA, as well as a couple of stations, where he announced that they were removing the subsidy for good, and there was a, there was a full price hike. Uh, there were a couple of people who tried to agitate then, but the current government had a lot of goodwill at the time. And that was the situation. It was doubts. There were a couple of meetings, and life moved on with the increase in prices. And this went on for about nine months. And about, about six months, about six months later, the same Dr. Kachiku came on here, but he did not say that there was a removal of subsidy. He said that there was an under-recovery. And as a result of the under-recovery, um, there was a need to patch it up, which in simple terms was a reintroduction of subsidy. Now, I'm not questioning his integrity. He's a man of honor. I mean, he has served to the best for the nation. But the issue is this. The fact that these figures and these terms are not visible and are not verifiable allows people to ask questions. Ask, they allow people to be suspicious. The root, the very bane of the inability of the subsidy question to actually be asked well, to actually be trusted well, is the lack of transparency that, that surrounds it. And I think that there should be a push for a legislation that will make it compulsory that every single parameter that is included in determining the prices of the subsidy and the finished product be made public to every single person that requires it. And why that is important is that when things are public, it is difficult for there to be anki-panki. I mean, there can be, but it is much more difficult. It is a result of darkness not being available where there is a lot of light. The subsidy question, anywhere you look at it, is not 
about being wrong in principle. It is about the implementation not benefiting those who should need it and, at it and the fact that it could be crippling the economy. And it is those things that, that can only be resolved in a complete atmosphere of transparency. So I, I, think, I think that's what can answer that one. And it is the people, it's the social media, it's the uh, fifth, uh, sorry, fourth estate of the realm as they've known, it is civil society, it is anybody who this thing can impact that can set in motion the critical mass of pressure that can probably ensure that these things are transparent. And because until it is transparent, there will always be somebody pointing fingers and somebody hiding behind one finger. It's a technical industry, so people can hide behind technicalities, which very few people we know. So it's important that these things are explained in layman's terms. It's important that they are transparent, that anybody can ask questions and verify. And until that is done, we'll be having this cycle of removing and not removing subsidy. Let me bring you to something that you have done quite a bit of work on uh, in the last uh, couple of years, and that is the gas to power project, the gas to power studies. Uh, so much has been said about this, especially as it relates to Nigeria. I did reference the fact that one of the most enduring problems Nigeria has had is uh, uh, inadequacy and uh, the absence of stability in public power supply. And there are many who have said, well, that is because of the method that we are using to generate the power, uh, which is uh, hydro uh, and, uh, and all of that, and that we are not leveraging on the more recent uh, technologies uh, having to do with gas, having to do with others. Now, Nigeria has more gas than it has even petroleum uh, products, uh, but somehow we are not linking the two, making use of that immense gas resource to power the country. Why are we not able to do so? And what do we need to do to be able to do that? Because if we are able to provide stable power supply, I've spoken to quite a number of people, including in your industry, who have said, if we're able to provide adequate power supply, leave Nigerians alone. Don't give them any other thing. Just leave them with adequate power supply and see what they will produce uh, for the economy. So this is critical. Why are we not doing it? And how do we go about doing it? So, um, like you said, we actually have more gas than oil. And that was that been proven for a number of years. One of the issues where it was not developed was that for a long time, for many decades, um, gas was considered a poor cousin of oil. And in those days, people would discover gas and they would be like, oh, how, I mean, the, the, it's actually disturbing our route to oil. But a lot has changed since then, and um, we are where we are now. So when the nation discovered that we had significant gas and gas was needed more, we, we started developing our gas wells. And that was where the NLNG project came up, the Nigerian Liquefied Natural Gas Project. And we had a number of projects which allowed us to um, export gas, most of which went into Asia, South Korea, uh, India, and, and, and in those areas. And we had very, very um, good contracts, which is natural to the gas field. Um, we had 30-year contracts along those lines. But with um, the rise of commodities, there also comes a low period. When, whenever the price of crude falls, it also 
affects the prices of gas internationally. And when the prices of crude rises, uh, the same thing happens. It was discovered that we were selling gas almost for free at a point in time. And we realized that we actually have a capacity, a potential local market that can actually consume a lot of all this gas. And that's why the government came up with a policy to develop gas. And that policy to develop gas locally was called the Gas Master Plan, the GMP. Now, the Gas Master Plan identified four areas for local gas development. They, like, they identified LPG, which is our cooking gas, liquefied petroleum gas. They identified gas-based industries. Those are industries that use gas as raw material. So we're talking about steel, we're talking about fertilizer, we're talking about methanol, where gas is the raw material for those industries. We also talked about gas in industries. So those are industries that use gas to power their equipment and the related. And of course, um, the, the, the gas to power, which incidentally is 70% of the local gas that we consume today. So if we are talking about local gas consumption today in Nigeria, most of it is gas to power. Now, that was the policy that government came up with. And to ensure that this was done properly. Part of the um, gas master plan was another sub-policy called the domestic supply obligation, or the DSO, which stipulates that everybody that produces gas, exporting, I mean, that is producing gas as a result of their drilling process, must make a percentage of that gas available for local consumption by fiat, or there are very steep penalties. So, because they had to compulsorily make that gas available for local consumption, the, they needed to look for ways to push it into the market. And that was how a lot of them were opting for uh, supply within the power sector because that's where the, the supply chain seemed to work better. Now, that is about the nice part of it, where the government has put in the structure. Now, as at today, the power sector is owing the gas suppliers to uh, the Genkos over a trillion naira. There are a lot of issues that are behind it, but the primary factor is that the supply chain, the gas to power, I mean, sorry, the power value chain is financially dysfunctional. In simple terms, the amount it, at which we sell electricity is actually lower than the amount to which the electricity is produced, transmitted, and distributed. So, and there are many factors for this. It's not just about the costs, it's the fact that the, uh, the issues within the industry have not been tackled. And the issues within the power sector that are responsible for this are summed up in what we call three factors. Um, the A, T, C, and C losses. Yeah, that's the aggregate, technical, collection, and commercial losses. That's, again, A, T, C, and C, aggregate, technical, collection, and commercial losses. So when we're talking about technical losses, we're talking about losses that are, um, because it's, I mean, it's an infrastructure business. Some of our transmission equipment, like we talk about the grid collapsing, there are losses that happen as a result of that. It's the industry that has to absorb it. Um, there are transmission losses from dilapidated equipment. 
is the grease, I mean, is the industry that has to also absorb that. So th those are technical losses. There are collection losses, which basically stipulate, which is, um, you know, it's very common in Nigeria to have um, people who think they are very smart. So they, I mean, somebody has a one-face meter, which is using to power a one-room apartment, but just behind him is operating a, a welding shop and is correcting via direct link to the welding shop. Now, people will say it's smart, but it's not really smart. It's shortchanging the system. So collection losses speaks to the fact that even after these electricity services has been provided, the system has limitation in collecting the money that those services, that those who have consumed the services have not been able to pay or they are not willing to pay. So there are also those who attack um, the, the distribution company people when they want to collect their money. There are government agencies who are not paying. I mean, there are the barracks and all that, which is a different issue. But the point is, there are billions that are being owed to the system after those services have been provided. So those, those are also collection losses. Then there are the commercial losses itself, which is basically the fact that it costs so much to produce, it costs so much to transmit. This is the amount that um, the power, I mean, that the electricity should cost for the, everybody within the value chain to be paid. And this has not happened. And this, th those prices have not been reflected. There are a number of factors why the commercial losses are not working. There are obviously a number of factors why collection losses exist, and there are factors for transmission losses. But as a result of these losses, the industry cannot take care of itself properly. So the discos will say uh, the system has not taken care of them. The transmission people will say the system has not taken care of them. The generation people will complain the same. And the generation uh, is where the gas suppliers, who are not directly part of the industry, are to be paid. So the way the system operates, every money that comes into the system comes in through the distribution company. However, every money that the distribution company collects does not belong to just them. It belongs to the total value. So what the distribution company does basically is that, okay, maybe ours is um, 60 Naira out of 100. I mean, okay, let's put it this way. Let's say they, their money is 40% of the total money, and it's supposed to cost 200 Naira for a particular service per kilowatt kilo, kilo hour. So when they get 100 Naira instead of 200 Naira, they first take out the whole of their own cash, or at least that's what we're made to believe, and then distribute whatever exists within the rest of the, within the, rest of the value chain with the result that people are not able to take care of themselves. Sorry to interrupt um, you, but whether is that this, is right I'm or sorry wrong. to interrupt, but is this not where the yes. subsidization, I'm sorry to use that phrase again, the subsidization which the federal government is supposedly offering comes in? Because uh, depending on whose figures you believe, uh, the government has poured in between 2013 when the privatization was done and now the government has poured in between 700 billion and more than a trillion naira to subsidize the distribution companies, the transmission companies and the generation companies to make up for some of these shortfalls in the collection uh, and in the commercial losses. Or is that just, uh, was that just English that they were speaking? No, the, the monitor, there was, a, there was a particular one in 20, I think it was 2017, where 701 billion was made available. 
and then there were a number of other interventions as well. However, the 701 billion was supposed to cover the shortfall to the um, to the generation companies. So basically, they were being um, they were being paid, I think about 70% of their invoices, which means they were being owed like 30%. So what the 701 billion did was to make it 100% so that they can properly pay their own I mean their own debts. However, that was a short-term measure to a big problem because if the system is not profitable and is not and we are not looking at how to end the unprofitability and you are just making funds available to take care of a shortfall what happens when the funds is over because the fund is not there in perpetuity and that was why it had an amount so when the 701 billion ended the jenkos went back to the old scenario that was basically what happened. So it was a case where monies were thrown into the problem without actually addressing the roots of the problem. I think that's basically what the issues were with respect to those interventions. Now, that also then leaves us with the question. I mean, you've addressed the background. You've given the context within which this has unraveled, the way it has unraveled. But there is supposed to be a push because the world is supposedly moving towards greener energy, greener technology, uh, cleaner fuels and so on, they don't want to use the traditional dirty fuels that we have been used to, the likes of coal and uh, uh, petrol and so on and all the, uh, the byproducts of that. We're supposed to be moving and gas is said to be one of the cleaner energies, if not one of the cleanest. And we have abundance of this which for decades, we have been flaring away uh, at no cost to the international oil companies because we didn't have the infrastructure with which to use it. Up till now, is it that we don't have that infrastructure? If so, why? Because with the world moving away, moving towards gas and other such clean technology like wind and solar and all of that, we are soon going to have a problem with investment. Already we have a problem with investment in the petroleum industry. Many of the traditional investors are moving away. In the first half of this year, uh, the in, uh, direct investment coming from abroad into our petroleum industry is drastically down, uh, depending on the estimate you believe, between 70 and 90% of that money is no longer forthcoming. So why are we not leveraging on this gas issue and how do we do it? Well, the gas is infrastructure based. So uh, the first thing is that there must be gas that is available to do some of the things we want to do. Yes, we have a lot of gas in reserves. We have a lot of gas even being fled. But the gas that we need to use either for domestic cooking or even by those in the industries or for gas to power is not exactly the one that is being fled. They need to go through processing. And we do not have enough processing plants. So we have a situation where uh, you have a lot of gas, but not in the dimension that it can be used. So it's a case of you being surrounded by water, which could be seawater, it could be river water, but not having water to be able to drink. So first of all, we need to invest in the infrastructure. We need to also drill more wells that will produce gas. So, it's, so we move it from the potential to that. So 
there hasn't been enough attention paid on that. And it's not even like if we decide to start drilling gas today, the drilling the world for gas today, we are going to get it tomorrow. No, it takes a bit of a time. It takes a few months, 18 months, 24 months, you know, like that. And that investment needs to be made. And after the gas starts coming out, we also need to process it. And gas processing plants are quite huge in terms of investment. So we are, we are talking about $300 million, $600 million investment, and we need a few of those things. It is the absence of that that actually makes domestic uh, local gas to increase in price. So we need to, the infrastructure needs to be in place. And of course, there's also the pipeline, which is basically the transportation of everything to it. With respect to um, investment coming in for fossils, is more largely about politics than it is about the technology or even the, the, the push for green fuel. I mean, obviously, as you can see, with just a little shaking as a result of the Ukraine crisis, the very foundation of what Europe believes in terms of um, um, clean energy is being shaken. There are so many people who have now opened up their old... Um, they are all the coal sites within in less than 100 months of the war. So, and these were also the same people who, when, they were, when Africa told them that the fact that they are not industrialized and they needed to still work on fossils a bit, they advised Africa to ration um, their fossils to close industries. And they are not exactly doing the same. So when people have funds, they can choose what they want to do with their funds and where to invest with their funds. However, it is also important that um, African nations, and in particular in this case Nigeria, determine a policy, an energy policy that suits them and that can help them to grow rather than a me too policy. You know, everybody is doing this, me too, I want to do it, that will suit to the um, whims and caprices of others. Because once others change their opinion, you'll be left in the law. And at, the, and at that time, you are not going to be able to say that it is because of what everyone was doing was why we did this. So with respect to uh, our policy, in terms of how we push for whatever type of energy we push, we need to have a holistic internal conversation to determine what is best for us on the medium term and on the long term, and then follow it. And then we need to also uh, be more conservative and be more honest and be more patriotic in terms of how we manage our funds so that we can invest in what we want. Because the nations that have managed their funds well from petrol, such as the UAE, such as Saudi Arabia, have not been complaining of investor funds, but they've been using their own funds to do the things that they should do. And as a result, they are maximizing, in fact, maxing out from the current uh, crisis that is happening in Europe as a result of Ukraine. So for us, in summary, we need to do what is important to us, what will make us to grow. But more importantly, we need to start building infrastructure for gas that will enable us to maximize the benefit locally and, of course, make new friends abroad with respect to exporting gas. Let me put you on the uh, spot, if you like. Uh, there are many who have said, look, we're going to have to bite this bullet eventually, so why don't we bite it now? It took almost 20 years to put in place the Petroleum Industry Act. And just as uh, the celebrations were getting underway, 
for that. Um, the government put its implementation, particularly the key part of it that so dealt with the, the removal of subsidies and allowing market forces determine the pricing, which you have referred to earlier on in this conversation, uh, aside for 18 months at the time, which meant that it would be a problem that the next administration would have to deal with after this time. Would you, if you were in a position uh, to advise, with everything you have said today, do you think the argument that we should remove all subsidies having to do with uh, energy uh, and allow market forces determine the forces, uh, determine the mechanism of uh, demand and supply, do you think if we do that, many of the challenges, including resource allocation, transparency that you talked about, and so on, would, would be ameliorated, if you like? Okay, I think if I'm to give a one-word answer, yes, probably subsidies should go, but there's a very big but there. The framework and the things that need to be in place before subsidies removed also need to be in place. So it is not just about telling people that they need to sacrifice and get ready for the removal of subsidy. It is also, there's a responsibility in, from the regulator. On, it's incumbent on the regulator, it's incumbent on government to make certain things to be in place. And to, to put this in perspective, you know, we like to say, why, why, why do subsidies exist itself? Subsidy is something that came out of necessity as democracy evolved. I mean, it's been proven all over the world that democracy is still about the best form of government. We have tried communism, we've tried theocracy over the centuries. Democracy has evolved, and it's, it's, it's still one of the best options for, for humankind. Part of the foundation of the bedrock of um, democracy is the free, free market system, the free, mar free market enterprise, which basically talks about demand and supply. However, the, the free market has a major flaw attached to it, which is capitalist greed. So if you leave uh, capitalist, um, the, the economy to the capitalists, they will run amok, gaining and punishing society. So, so, that, the, so that democracy does not co collapse, government has come up with a regulator, which is a kind of big brother that looks at the scenario, which helps to ensure that there is balance. And in as much as they want to promote free markets, they also want to ensure that people don't start rioting and all that. And that is where subsidy comes in. Subsidy is supposed to ensure that um, there's a balance in trade. However, and subsidy is not bad. It exists virtually everywhere in all nations of the world till this day. But what makes our own subsidy bad is that it does not benefit or address the people that it should address. So because there is an opaque system that surrounds it. And that's where the real issues are. It's not the subsidy itself in principle. So there's a need to remove subsidies so that Nigeria can develop. Because we have close to the amount that we budget for the whole nation also being used for subsidy. So if subsidy were to be removed today, there's greater possibility for infrastructure development, roads around the country, uh, pipe bomb water, you know, the basic schools, you know, everything that should happen. Monies can be spent in that area. Whether the monies will now be spent in that area is a total different issue. That's an issue of governance, that's an issue of corruption, that's an issue of uh, political ethos. But the fact is that the money from subsidy can be available 
for national development. So what the nation needs to ensure is that so that people do not get to the stage where they will start to riot, where um, the government in power, their capacity to stay in power will be questioned. They need to provide certain cushioning and, and certain framework. One that will ensure that the people actually know what is happening. Because as, aside from the cushions or whatever effect they want to put in, people must know that this subsidy that is happening is, I mean, I mean the, whatever is happening is actually to their own benefit and nobody is taking unfair advantage of it. Then they can have the incentive to sacrifice or do whatever is needed. But until there is that transparency, it will be difficult to ensure a, a proper subsidy remover. The second part of the transparency is that you won't get to a stage where trans, a subsidy has been computed and they said it was removed, just like I mentioned in the Dr. Kachiku case. And a few months down the line, they will now use another term like under recovery, and they say we are back to subsidy. And nobody really knows when um, the under recovery started or when the subsidy was removed. So these transparency issues are what is actually hindering the removal of the subsidy. However, like I said, it, should the subsidy be removed given the current socioeconomic status we have? Yes, but, and the issue is but, it's a big but, certain things need to be in place for the subsidy removal to work. In one minute, would you look into your crystal ball and tell us where you think the petroleum industry will be, particularly for Nigeria, uh, within the next 12 months? Well, it's an election cycle. <laughs> and it's also a period of change. With change comes on uncertainty. In a few days' time, the NMPC will be uh, evolving. They are going to become a limited liability company. Those modalities will be spelled out. Um, some of the, peri I mean, subsidies attached to it, like NAPIMS, like MPDC, are also going to evolve. So it's difficult to predict because prediction comes are basically possible when certain factors are constant. And that's the, that's the fundamental laws of mathematics. For you to draw a graph, there has to be a constant and there has to be an uncertainty. But when there are too many uncertainties, it will be difficult to say this is what will happen. But let's look at the, let's take certain things, assumptions as certainties. Let's take the certainty that, um, let's take the assumption as a certainty that the interest of the people and the interest to do well is present in all the people that are concerned. Let's take the assumption that the, the, the cost of fuel, the cost of crude will remain as it is. Let's take the assumption that the security issues with respect to crude vandalization and stolen crude will be eliminated within the next few months. Then we'll really see income. We'll actually see some money that will go into our sovereign wealth fund, which can now be used to show up the dollar and then, I mean, show up the naira against the dollar and then, and ensure some balance. With, um, with security taken care of, that means more people will go into the farms. With more people into the farms, the cost of food for local consumption will go down. Because our own, the factors that affect our own food is different from what is affecting others. Because most, a lot of our food is actually produced locally. But the local insecurity is what is affecting it. So once this, um, what normally should be certain, are uh, 
which are uncertain at the moment become certain, then genuinely and truly, we expect more income, we expect more development, and we expect uh, greater transparency with the evolution that has taken place within the industry. But the most important thing, which is a constant that nobody can do anything about, is the fact that now there are regulators to the industry. So there are organizations, agencies that are dedicated wholly and totally to regulation for the industry, which is the NUPRC, that's the Petrol, Upstream Petroleum Regulatory Commission, and the Midstream and Downstream Regulatory Authority. Those people will evolve in terms of their job to play big brother to ensure that there is balance in the industry. They may be slow, but it is a constant that they will focus on their job and ultimately become the proper players that will help the industry to get to the land where they will provide succor for Nigerians, which is something we so richly deserve as a people. Thank you so very, very much, uh, Mr. Olabode Shomi, for your time on Newsnight. Thank you so much for your perspective. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. That's our program today. We would, of course, like to hear from you on the conversation. Our social media handles are right there on your screen. You can also listen to this and previous episodes of the program via our podcast. Please visit our website, channelstv.com forward slash podcast to get started. I am Ladi Akiri Duluali. Goodbye. <music>